Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how are you doing today? It's all groovy over here, Mike. How are you? I can't complain. I'm excited to get into uh, the episodes. One of my favorite movies today, which is always fun. I mean, we do a lot of movies. I don't think we typically do movies that we we hate, except for on occasion, Big Lebowski. <clears throat> which I love. <laughs> yes, I know. And that was episode four, listeners, if you, if you want to go back and listen to that. Big yeah, Lebowski and Spy Game. For, for the record, I don't hate The Big Lebowski. It's just probably my least favorite film that we've done so far, or one of them. But anyway, uh, today we're doing a film that I love. Yes, and, that's uh, right. That's it's always flubber. exciting. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we're finally going to do Flubber. It's, a, it's about time. We've been teasing you with it long enough. No, no. Sadly, we are not doing Flubber just yet. But uh, Phil, why don't you tell people what we will be discussing in this episode? Yes. Well, we will be going after the ending of Coming to America, which I think will be our first Eddie Murphy movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. And we'll be doing the classic and brilliant The Iron Giant. Yes, that is one of my favorites. I am really excited about it. And uh, I think we're going to have some fun with it. So what else we got? Yes, I will be doing the top 10 films of 1996. As always, a jam-packed episode for you. Let's not delay any then, Phil. Let's jump into things. Why don't you go ahead and take us through the events of Coming to America? Well, I've got my McDowell cheery mail ready. Excellent. All right. And away we go. Okay, we, f- we follow the story of Akeem Jafar, who's played by Eddie Murphy. And he's the prince. The character is the Prince of Zamunda, a place in Africa. He lives a very pampered lifestyle where he doesn't have to do anything for himself, but he's fed up with it. And when he finds out he'll have to marry a beautiful woman he has never met and who will obey his every command, he decides enough is enough. And he packs up and decides to travel to America with his friend Semi, played by Arsenio Hall. And the plan is to find an intelligent, independent man and woman who he can love and respect and who will also love him for who he is and not for his wealth and social status. They end up in, a, they end up in Queens, New York City and pretend to be poor foreign students and get jobs at McDowell's, a fast food restaurant, which has some similarities to another one, but uh, I'm not sure which one. It's Taco Bell, obviously. <laughs> it's Taco Bell, yeah, yeah, or it could be, you know, uh, Subway, not sure. Right, right, right. O- other fast food venues are available. That's right. <laughs> uh, but there, Akeem falls in love with Lisa, played by Cherie Headley, who's daughter, the daughter of the owner of the restaurant, Cleo McDowell, played by the always wonderful John Amos. Akeem then attempts to win Lisa's hand in marriage, and he gives all his money away to... A couple of homeless guys who happen to be Randolph and Mortimer Duke from Trading Places. A nice little callback. Yes. Uh, but this causes Semi to call the king and queen of Zamunda, played by James Earl Jones and Madge Sinclair, and they travel over to bring Akeem home. When Lisa finds out Akeem lied to her, she refuses to marry him, even when he renounces the throne. Akeem returns home heartbroken and resigns himself to marrying the woman chosen by his parents. However, when he gets to the end of the aisle at the big ceremony, he finds that there's Lisa waiting for him. They marry and live happily ever after, while the people of Zamunda rejoice. And that's coming to America. You know, it's funny because it's only in the movies, first of all, that 
you know, you start dating a guy and then you find out he's secretly a prince. My wife and I just had this conversation the other day because we watched, the family watched um, Ella Enchanted not long ago because my daughter read the book and it's a really fun movie with Anne Hathaway. Yeah. And yeah. so we were joking about, and I was saying how I said, yeah, you know, mommy, you know, just keeps waiting for me to reveal that I'm secretly a prince. And she's like, oh, she's like, it's every girl's dream that, you know, you start dating a guy. It turns out he's a prince. Now in this movie, that actually happens, but only in the movies then is a woman mad because the guy she's dating turns out to actually be royalty. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think yeah. most most women or men, if they were dating a girl who decided, you know, who was a princess, aren't going to be like, "Well, I'm mad that you're secretly the prince of a country and you're worth millions and millions of dollars." I think that only happens in films because most people will be pretty darn psyched to find out. Yeah, because to, to be honest, other. yeah, you'd fall in love with the person before, right? You knew about that. Right. I could, yeah, you could, you could still be angry with them for, for lying to you. But yeah, yeah, but I think could, I'd get over it pretty yeah. quickly. If I was dating a girl <laughs> and she was awesome and I was in love with her and then she's like, oh, by the way, I'm a princess and I'm super rich. And I think maybe I could get over being hurt about the lying pretty quickly. You know what I mean? That's I'd be true, like, yeah. uh, well, please don't lie to me again. But in the meantime, yay, <laughs> you're a princess. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good point. Anyway, I just found that amusing. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know. I've been in that situation many a time, and I always end up going the wrong direction. So, right. See? I See? need to learn from my mistakes. That's right. Just do like the movies do. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> oh, you know, I could have been I could have been queen of the world. That's... Oh, no, that was really wrong, wasn't it? Oh. <laughs> you could have been Prince Phil. See? Prince Phil. Yeah. Prince Philip, as if that's going to catch up. It's <laughs> <laughs> a terrible name for a prince. Oh, they would never go for that. <laughs> Sorry, Your Majesty, just in case you're listening, we uh, <laughs> right. didn't mean to do that. Right. Okay, but what have you got for your day after? Okay, well, Prince Akeem and Lisa take their honeymoon, and it's a whirlwind trip around the world. When they return to Zamunda, they spend some time just being happily married, but it isn't long before Lisa gets restless. Much as she enjoys being royalty, her desire to do good in the world is overwhelming. Prince Akeem has changed since he met Lisa, and he wants to help her with her acts of charity and altruism. So they travel to New York to attend a conference on civil rights. While Prince Akeem is attending a lecture, Lisa heads back to their hotel room when she is grabbed by a group of hooded men and thrown into a van. It's not long before Prince Akeem receives a ransom call. The callers demand $100 million in 48 hours, or Lisa will be killed. Oh, blimey. Yes. Yeah. I know, a little danger in the world of uh, Prince Akeem here. Oh, what's going to happen? Well, I think there's going to be some similarities with the beginning of ours. Okay. Of each of our <laughs> tales. But uh, for those just joining us, neither Mike or myself know what the other one's done. So sometimes there will be similarities, and then, but they usually go off in different ways. Okay. But for my day after, Akeem and Lisa go on their honeymoon, and it's a trip around the world. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound slightly familiar mm. now that you mention it. Some of it involves visiting various other heads of state, but there's plenty of amazing places and experiences, and they do manage to have some time alone even though there are, they do have the bodyguards and things like that. But it's it's a wonderful time. Lisa was blown away by this level of luxury and expense. It begins to weigh heavily on her, though, and she begins to feel guilty. There are so many needy people out there, she explains to Akeem. His time in America gave him a much better understanding of the situation, and he agrees. On, the retur to, on their return to Zamunda, he shows how they ensure that every native of the country is looked after. The vast wealth from the mineral deposits is shared amongst the population. Everyone has a home, a job, free health care and education, and when a person reaches the age of 21 in Zamunda, they are given a huge amount of money to help them go on with their life. Zamunda and the neighbouring country of Wakanda are jewels <laughs> in the continent of Africa. Hmm, Wakanda, that sounds slightly familiar. I wonder where I've heard <laughs> that before. Yes, uh, I think Bruce Banner 
I'd never heard of it when he was searching the computer. <laughs> That's but, right. Uh, there we go. I am, I'm marveling at the idea of them being <laughs> next to Wakanda. <laughs> so uh, that's my day after. What have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, in a panic, Akeem reaches out to Semi back in Zamunda for help. Semi quickly does some digging and discovers that Akeem has a distant cousin in the wild lands of Detroit, Michigan. His name is Axel Foley. Semi puts the two in contact, and Axel agrees to help Akeem get Lisa back. He flies to New York and meets up with Akeem. At first, their two very different backgrounds clash, and they don't get along, especially when Akeem tells Axel that he laughs like an animated donkey. When, a- <laughs> when Axel threatens to storm off in a huff, Akeem realizes that he must stop acting like a prince if he wants to see his bride again. He tells Axel, I am in your hands. Tell me what to do, and I will do it. Okay, Axel says, first things first, I need $100 million. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it for now. Nice. Oh, yeah, I was trying to think about getting uh, Beverly Hills Cop into mind, but I couldn't think of a situation, but that's a good idea. Yeah. The trouble is, though, if this, it's it's ridiculous, though, because Eddie Murphy's never going to act against himself in any scene. <laughs> right, I mean, he how they even do that. do that, right. Yeah. Exactly. He's never, ever done that in any film he's ever been in. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> All right, how about your immediate aftermath, then? Okay, well, uh, Akeem and Lisa are blissfully happy. Sammy is also doing okay. His time in America also gave him a fresh perspective on life. While Prince Akeem deals with various affairs of state, Lisa and Sammy develop various schemes to help share the Zamunda wealth and way of life around the world. Things like student exchange schemes, various civil rights options, uh, college scholarships awarded to those for exceptional talent, medical outreach programs, and lots, lots more. They even help Daryl and his father develop more beneficial hair care products, so like Soul Glow version 2. Um, they've also helped finance the new diet aid developed by Professor Sherman Klump, a new sunscreen from a man simply known as Maximilian, and a child protection scheme by Chandler Jarrell. They also managed to win a bid to host the Summer Olympics, an event that will really put the nation of Zamunda on the, in the public eye. And while visiting Wakanda, young Prince T'Challa tells Lisa he would love to compete at the Games. During the return journey home, Prince Akeem is given the terrible news that his father was killed in a terrible car accident. Mm. His mother is distraught at the news, and she says that Akeem is now king and Lisa is queen. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. Some serious stuff going on there. Well, you know, you've got to take the, the good times with the bad. <laughs> that's right. I do like that T'Challa made his uh, his uh, appearance there. A little Black Panther action. Never a bad thing. Yes. And just so you know, those, uh, well, there was Sherman Klump, which was the nutty professor. Right. Maximilian was the uh, the vampire when he played. Yeah, from Vampire in Brooklyn, right? That's the one, yeah. And Chandler Jarrell was the character from The Golden Child. That's so. it. Boy, that's the one that got me. And I love The Golden Child, but it has been been a couple of years, we'll say, since I've seen it. <laughs> well, well, I love that as well, but I didn't realize that was his name. Yeah. I was, I was going, no, oh, yes. and I was looking and I was going, that's his name? I that, never... that, right. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. But uh, that's it, though. Very good. Okay, then. So what have you got for your long term? What's Axel Foley and Prince Akeem going to do to save... Princess Lisa. All right. Well, two nights later, on a deserted bridge at midnight, a scrawny teenage pizza delivery boy walks out to the middle of the bridge. He's carrying a stack of pizza boxes that are filled with $100 million in cash. Wow. A van pulls up, and four heavily armed men wearing hoods get out. One of them is holding Lisa by the arm. They approach the pizza boy and quickly search him, but before they can inspect the pizza boxes, Axel jumps out from the shadows and shoots three of them. The remaining man grabs Lisa and shields himself with her, preventing Axel from getting a shot off. From behind him, the pizza boy pulls a gun out of one of the pizza boxes and yells, Remove your hands from my wife. The gunman whirls around and aims his gun at him, but before he can shoot, Axel drops him with a well-placed bullet. 
The pizza boy pulls off his mask to reveal that it's Prince Akeem in disguise. Lisa rushes over to him, and the two embrace. Akeem thanks Axel for his help and says, I just have one question. If you were going to shoot them before they got the money, why did you need the $100 million? Axel replies, I just wanted to see what $100 million looked like, and laughs. (laughs) You still laugh like a donkey, Prince Akeem exclaims, and the three of them sit on the curb laughing as police cars pull up with sirens blaring. And that's the end. I really like that. Oh, thanks. It was good. It was very typical Axel Foley. Yeah, and I was trying to get in some of the, like, you know, Eddie Murphy playing multiple characters and stuff, like in, you know, yeah, like yeah. Coming to America and all that. Yeah, I had a little fun with it. Very cool. I do like that. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, uh, let's hear how yours wraps up then. Go ahead and give us your long term. Okay. The years since the death of his father have flown by, but King Akeem misses him terribly. However, he's a, an extremely good king, and he also managed to stop his evil uncle, who no one talks about, from taking over the throne. <laughs> Sammy is now also married with two children, while Akeem and Lisa are expecting their first. Lisa and Sammy's various programs have been hugely successful, and Zamunda's ready to take its rightful place on the world stage as the Summer Olympics begin. And that's my long term. All right. So a nice happy ending for everyone for yeah. the most part. Nothing, nothing in particular. It's just the ex- extension of their life and a little reference to The Lion King as well. Yes, I like it. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. All right, so Phil, do you have any Coming to America trivia for us? No. Yes, I do. <laughs> it is, uh, speaking of uh, The Lion King, as we know, James Earl Jones voiced King Mufasa, but also Madge Sinclair, who played the Queen in Coming to America, also voiced Queen's, the Queen in The Lion King. So I did that's not a nice know that. Thing. I didn't quite realize that either. Uh, Zamunda was uh, taken from a Richard Pryor routine where he referred to a fictional African tribe with the same name. Huh. Uh, production on the film had approval from McDonald's head office about use, doing the McDowell's uh, restaurants and joke, but apparently the head office didn't pass it on to local McDonald's restaurants, and the manager of a nearby uh, McDonald's turned up with lawyers and told the film crew that they'd be sued for everything they were worth, <laughs> which I quite like. Uh, yeah. Cuba Gooding Jr. and Vondi Curtis Hall, who were uh, Vondi Curtis Hall, you will know from the first season of Daredevil, he played Ben Yorick, who's a great character. They made their first on-screen appearances in the film. And John Landis's usual thing of getting see you next Wednesday into every film he make, makes was on a poster in the subway. Oh, there you go. Yes, and that is Coming to America. Excellent. All righty, so that is that. Let's move on then to The Iron Giant. Yes, I do like this film. How can you not? It's great. I, you know, this is one of those movies, and I've said it before on the show, but I'll say it again. It's it's one of those movies where I feel like there are two types of people in the world, those who love the Iron Giant and those who haven't seen the Iron Giant. Yeah, I think you've uh, got the nail on the head there, or in case the Iron Giant, the screw that wanders through the snow. But you're right, it's, uh, it's not so much – it's an adaptation of the book by Ted Hughes, but it also goes its own way, and it's it's just so – you can tell there's so much love in it. It's got great character designs of everyone, not just the Iron Giant. It's a lovely tale about a family and, and a big giant robot. Yeah, and friendship and all kinds of stuff. As, actually, so here's what I thought was interesting. In, in the Wikipedia entry for the Iron Giant, it is described as an animated science fiction comedy drama action film. <laughs> I was like, well, that's pretty much every genre you can come up with all, all yeah, into one. Yeah. You know? Blimey. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it all works. It all works. Okay, do you want to uh, give us a quick rundown on what happens in the film? All right. Well, The Iron Giant, 1999, directed by Brad Bird, starring the voices of Jennifer Aniston, Harry Connick Jr., and Vin Diesel. So it's 1950s America in the Northeast, and at the height of the Cold War nuclear scare, a young boy named Hogarth Hughes finds a giant metal living robot in the woods behind his house. Despite government agent Kent Mansley investigating the existence of the giant, Hogarth keeps him hidden and becomes friends with the giant. 
He takes him to the nearby junkyard and becomes friends with Dean, the hipster cool artist who owns it. When Hogarth is playing with a toy gun, the Iron Giant reacts and goes into defense mode and almost hurts Hogarth. But he eventually calms down and they realize that it's not a good idea to piss off the Iron Giant. Meanwhile, Hogarth's mom Annie and Dean become friends. When the Iron Giant saves two boys and reveals himself to the townspeople, Kent Mansley and the army show up, bent on destroying it. The giant goes into defense mode and destroys a bunch of army vehicles, but the army eventually stands down and the giant returns to normal. An enraged Kent Mansley orders a nuclear strike, which will destroy Hogarth's town as well. The giant says goodbye to Hogarth, then flies off to intercept the missile. It explodes in the atmosphere, and the giant is blown to bits. Months later, the town constructs a statue. I know it gets you, gets you all teary every, every time. Every time. I know. Even though I know it's going to happen. Yep, every time. Months later, the town constructs a statue in the giant's memory, and we see various parts of the giant in Norway rolling towards the giant's head, which has reawakened. And that is the Iron Giant. Very nicely done. Thank you. I do, I do like how uh, Christopher McDonald, who did the voice of Kent Mansley, I do like how he plays those characters so well, like in uh, Happy Gilmore and so yes. many others. Yes, yeah, he's great for that, for sure. Yeah, just that, that's so, you know, he's, he's so sure what he wants, and he's pretty so patronizing and... Oh, you want to slap him? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he really has it down to a science. Yeah, very good. All right, well, Phil, why don't you go ahead and give us your day after? Okay, then. Hogarth knows that it will be a long... Oh, first of all, Hogarth, such a mad name. <laughs> yeah. It really is. is. Yeah. It's every time I watch it, I always know that, but every time you, get, you call the name, I always go, really? Hogarth? Okay. Sorry to any Hogarths out there. It is a cool name, but just unexpected in the film. Uh, Hogarth knows that it will be a long time before the Iron Giant puts itself together, so he carries on with his life as best he can. He is a minor celebrity, and Hogarth and his mother are interviewed by various magazines. Dean's artwork becomes popular for a while, but all the buzz eventually dies down and things return to normal. Hogarth takes to writing down his adventures and does many drawings of his giant friend, but nobody would have believed that the planet was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man. Mm. And that's my day after. Okay. Mm. I'm Thank you to H.G. Wells for that last little bit, but uh, there you go. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, thank you. And what have you got for your day after? All right. Well, life slowly returns to normal for Hogarth. His mom and Dean begin dating, which is weird for him at first, but him and Dean remain close friends, and he's happy to see his mom be happy for the first time that he can remember. For his birthday, Dean and Annie get Hogarth a telescope, and he becomes preoccupied with astronomy and watching the stars. Part of it is just a general interest in space, and part of it is because he can't let go of the Iron Giant, wanting to discover where he came from and if there are more like him out there in the cosmos. He also gets a ham radio and begins monitoring it regularly for transmissions involving UFOs, strange sightings, objects falling to Earth, and things like that. It starts out as a hobby, but as he gets older, it becomes more and more of an obsession for Hogarth. And that's where I'll leave it for now. Ooh. Very good. I like that. Thank you. All right. Well, let's find out about this intelligence that's watching Earth. So give us your immediate aftermath. So my immediate aftermath. Uh, months have passed by and still no sign of the Iron Giant. Yet Hogarth never gives up hope. Despite, or maybe because of their different outlooks on life, Dean and Annie grow close. The relationship blossoms and there is some stability in their Hughes household. They all have a good time, good fun. And because Hogarth already became friends with Dean beforehand, it's all just works out. And it's it's really nice. They enjoy watching movies late at night, eating cookies and milk and just having a great time. But Annie begins to notice various news stories about scientists disappearing around the world. At first it was one or two, but it is happening more often and there's no explanation. It's like something out of a comic book, man, says Dean. Imagine if it was all some crazy scheme to make governments 
look for peace by having scientists make some kind of fake octopus alien race attack us. I'd like to watch that, man. <laughs> Dean's words are surprisingly close to the truth. Only the aliens are real. That night, invaders from Mars begin their attack. With scientists out of the picture, there's only the military option, and it doesn't look good. And that's my immediate aftermath. All right. I like your, uh, I like your little nod there to a certain seminal DC Comics graphic novel. I'm glad you picked up on that because I was writing it to go, no, yeah, but I was, just wasn't sure whether to pick up on it. Yeah, no, no I, I definitely enjoyed it. Excellent. Okay, so uh, what have you got for your long term? All right. Well, several years later, Hogarth is now 16 and has notebooks full of notes and data. He's been tracking anomalies for years, and he thinks he's made a discovery. He believes there's an alien armada amassing on the far side of the moon, ready to attack the Earth. He tries to tell the government, but nobody believes him. Finally, he gets desperate. He drives down to Washington, D.C., and with a little footwork, he finds the person he's looking for. He makes his way to a seedy bar in a rundown part of town, walks in, and instantly sees the man he's looking for sitting in a booth in the corner. It's Kent Mansley. Oh, excellent. <laughs> After the disaster in Hogarth's town, Mansley was drummed out of the government, only avoiding prosecution because his uncle was an advisor to the president. When Hogarth sits down in Mansley's booth, Mansley says, What the hell do you want, kid? Hogarth says to him, I need your help. I think you were right. The earth is in danger, and it's up to you and me to save it. And that's where I'll leave it for now. Oh, excellent. Thanks. Okay. All right, so let's, uh, let's see how yours wraps up, Phil. Give us your long term. Okay, the Martian invasion continues. Mankind, mankind's forces fight back valiantly, but the school-faced Martians who say nothing but ak 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 are too technologically advanced. Very nice. Ak 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 ak. <laughs> the battle hasn't reached the town of Rockwell, but Annie, Dean, and Hogarth watch the news reports. All seems lost. Then their phone rings. Hogarth answers it. At first, there's nothing but silence, but then a familiar, deep, gravelly voice says. I am Groot. No, it says, <laughs> it says, I had to get help, but back now. The news report cuts out for a second, and then a clearer picture is broadcast. The Iron Giant can be seen striding amongst the Martian troops. He is in full battle mode and laying waste to the alien invaders. Hogarth cheers and then gasps when he sees that other robots are helping the Iron Giant. They are v all various shapes and sizes and seem to transform into tanks, planes, and other vehicles. <laughs> the tide of battle has changed. Earth has a chance. Very nice. And that's my long term. I like it. I see if you could fit a few more uh, tie-ins to other properties in there. <laughs> <laughs> ah, 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 ah. Yeah. Very, very cool. I enjoyed that. Thank you. And um, what have you got then? Okay, what's happening with your long term and this alien armada behind the moon? Well, once again, I'd, I'd just like to point out that you and I do not compare notes before yes, uh, yeah. to our endings. Maybe a few similarities here, but uh, I mean, this mine's a little long, but uh, you know, I'm just going to get into no, it. No, go on. So here we go. Hogarth fills Mansley in on the data he has that points to an alien invasion. Mansley doesn't know what he can do to help, but Hogarth tells him he needs his help to get to Norway, where he believes the Iron Giant has been reassembled thanks to some satellite imagery he's hacked from government computers. I know this is like the 50s, early 60s, but you work with me here. He's a smart kid. Well, if you've, if you've, been, in touch, if you've been in touch with like an Iron, an Iron a Giant robot from space, I think you'd, uh, right. things probably would have developed a different way. There you go. Mansley laughs at Hogarth, but realizing that his life has hit rock bottom and sensing that maybe this is his last chance to make a difference, he agrees to help anyway. With Mansley's assistance, they travel to Norway and make their way out to the remote ice fields. 
They find the giant back in one piece, but they also find a U.S. government installation that has the giant secured and unable to move while they study him. Boo. Hogarth and Mansley sneak into the facility at night, and Hogarth reunites with the giant, who is conscious but unable to move. The giant recognizes Hogarth, and it's clear that he is happy to see him. Hogarth doesn't know how to get the giant free from the government's restraints. He turns to Mansley for help, and Mansley says, Don't worry, kid. I've got this. He kicks the iron giant in the head, then pulls out a gun and points it at Hogarth. The, uh, the giant automatically goes into defense mode, his weapons and extra power allowing him to easily escape his restraints. Oh, awesome. I like that. Yeah, that's, thanks. <laughs> that's a good way of doing it. Yeah. I thought so. Yeah. Hogarth then quickly calms him down and tells the giant that Earth needs his help once again. The giant understands. He activates a signal, and then he scoops up Hogarth and Mansley and begins flying back to the U.S. As they land back in Maine, reports of alien ships begin to come in. Before the giant goes off to battle the invading aliens, he looks at Hogarth and says, Friends. Hogarth says, Yes, we'll always be friends. The giant says, No, friends, and points up. A dozen iron giants appear in the sky above, landing beside Hogarth and the iron giant. The battle that has raged across the galaxy for eons is about to be taken up once more on Earth. And that's the end. Oh, I like it. Thanks. So similar That's, in having some reinforcements show up, although yours were Transformers and mine were more Iron Giants. But Yeah, I, I could see they probably would introduce more if they did make a sequel to it. Right, right, exactly. That is the Iron Giant. Phil, do you have any Iron Trivia for us? Yes, well, we've already mentioned it was written by Ted Hughes, and that's why the surname of Annie and Hogarth is Hughes. It was uh, because of him. That's a nice little nod. I know, I'm glad they have something in there, but ignoring the yells and groans, the Iron Giant only says a total of 53 words, hmm. which is a lot more than I thought he actually said. Yeah, I was going to say, I wouldn't <laughs> even think it was that many. No. It was also the first traditionally animated feature to have a major character, in this case the uh, the title character, who was fully computer generated. Right. So it was a very nice melding of it. And they also, to make sure it didn't stand out too much, they did something to the computer program where it's sort of the, uh, the outline of the giant sort of it was a bit shaky, so it fitted in with the hand-drawn look of it all. Yeah, that's cool. So really nice. To look. A lot of thought went into this making of this film. Yeah. A of, and a lot of love. Uh, Peter Cullen, Sean Connery, Frank Welker, and James Earl Jones were considered for the voice of the Iron Giant. But, of course, it went to Vin Diesel. Yes, yes. Makes it's total sense, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and I didn't know this one. It was originally meant to be a musical. Pete Townsend of The Who and Des McAnuff. I think that's how you pronounce it. We're developing it using songs from Pete Townsend's concept album, The Iron Man. Huh. That is interesting. Ooh. I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm super glad they didn't go in that direction. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> but uh, that's The Iron Giant. Very nicely done. All right. Well, there you go. That's going to wrap up our endings for this episode. Let's move on then to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes. This week, we are discussing the year 1996. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your famous time machine, take us back to the 90s, and tell us what the world was like. Okay. 1996 was a leap year, and reading through the events of what happened there, it shows that the global memory of the population of Earth is extremely short, because 1996... You know, it was just over 20 years ago, but it was such a depressing year. There were so many bombings and assassinations. We had loads over here where the IRA was blowing up Manchester and London and stuff. Just incredible, and it was all over the world. So I'm going to leave all that out because it's so depressing. Very good. I think that's a, a wise decision. A little yeah. good news goes a long way sometimes. But also we had the Olympics, which took place in Atlanta. Uh, the Ramones played their last show. I mean, to some people, that will be the worst thing that ever right, happened. Right, right. Uh, 
The Nintendo 64 system was released in Japan, as was Pokemon Red and Blue. Dolly the Sheep, the first mammal to be successfully cloned from an adult cell, was born in Scotland. Deep Blue, the computer genius, defeated the chess champion Gary Kasparov for the first time on the 10th of February, and then Gary beat Deep Blue on the 17th of February. So that's the events of 1996, but we also had some births of some people who were kind of big, kind of a big deal right now. Sophie Turner, Game of Thrones, Abigail Breslin, Anya Taylor-Joy, Violet Bean, Tom Holland, Cody Smith-McPhee, Brianna Hildebrand, Zendaya, Lord, Ty Sheridan and Hayley Steinfeld. But we also lost Jerry Siegel, Gene Kelly, George Burns, Greer Garson, Saul Bass, Claude Decolbert, Ella Fitzgerald, John Pertwee, Tupac, Beryl Reed, Tiny Tim, Carl Sagan, Mar Marcello, Mastroianni, Willie Rushton, Jack Nance and Carl Sagan. And we also had the film debuts of Will Arnett, 1996 with Billy Crudup, Mila Kunis, Emily Mortimer, Emily Watson, Edward Norton, Timothy Oliphant, Octavia Spencer, Justin Theroux, and Luke and Owen Wilson. All right. A lot going on that year. There was, but uh, yeah. So I was just trying to put in a few more good things as opposed to all the crap that <laughs> right. went on that year. <laughs> but right. that's, that was 1996, and now we will share our top 10 favorite films of that year. Yes, it should be interesting to see where we where we fall on this one. So why don't you go ahead and kick us off, give us your number 10. Okay, well, my number 10 is actually, it's it's a double double whammy because neither of them are the best films in the world, but they always make me laugh, and I thought I'd just lump them together just to get them out of the way, because, but they are Kingpin and Happy Gilmore. Ah, very good. So Kingpin is the Farley Brothers one with Woody Halson, Randy Quaid and Bill Murray and Vanessa Angel about the bowling and the Amish, and it's, it's just, it's well, it's Farley Brothers... So you know what you're getting. Stupid. <laughs> so you know it's probably not going to be on my list. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, but it's a, it's stupid, uh, but it it always makes me laugh. And sometimes you just want stupid. And Happy Gilmore, it's uh, my favourite Adam Sandler film. <laughs> so it's it still makes me that one still makes me laugh as well. It's got loads of things going on in it. It works better than lots of his other ones because I, d I don't know what it is because it's similar to others, but it just just seems to be. I think it's just the whole. I think the supporting cast. Just lift it up another level. Again, Christopher McDonald is in it to shoot a McGavin, so you can't go wrong with that. But they're, they're my top ten. That's... Kingpin and Happy Gilmore. And we went after the ending of Happy Gilmore back in episode... That was episode 32, where we also went after the ending of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Right, 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 right. Very good. All right, well, my number 10 is not going to be a huge surprise, but there's a little more to it than, than some people might think. It is The Hunchback of Notre Dame, or The Hunchback of Notre Dame, however you want to say it. <laughs> uh, and that would be the Disney version. Now, I know it's, it's you know, a lot of people are probably thinking, oh, it's a Disney film. Of course, it's on Mike's list. He likes the Disney movies, none of which is untrue, of course. But I actually didn't like a Hunchback when I first saw it in theaters. You know, this was coming after the sort of Disney renaissance of, of uh, Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Lion King, which are my, you know, three favorite Disney films, and I, I really love them. And uh, then, you know, they did Pocahontas, then Hunchback, and I was kind of like, ah, oh, Hunchback, it's dark, and it's kind of boring, and this and that. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't love the film. Yeah. And yeah. then, um, much like Ice Age a couple of weeks ago, it was one of the movies that I could play when I was working in a video store in my early 20s. And so I, I put it on a lot, and... Uh, 
I sort of just developed this real affinity for it. It's become one of my favorite Disney films from the 90s. I, I realize it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I really like the sort of tragic story of it. It was very different for Disney. Uh, it's darker, and it has. I just really love the character. I think that Tom Hulse's performance as Quasimodo is really terrific. And uh, I don't know, it's just a film that really grew on me, and I, I think it's deserving of a second chance. For If people haven't seen it in a long time, it might be worth revisiting because I think it's a better film than most people give it credit for. So that's my number 10 a good pick uh, but uh i probably have to agree with you there because i only saw it the once many years ago right right it's not the and kind of film that impresses on first viewing i don't think it's it's funny you you do watch certain disney films over and over but then there's so much just just seem to just vanish from your consciousness and that's right. one of them right right okay good pick but uh, my number nine is the people versus larry flint i think we mentioned this briefly last week because uh, woody halson's in it yep and he does it's an amazing Biopic starring Woody Harrelson as Larry Flint, who was the editor, uh, or publisher and editor of the Porno magazine. Is it, was a hustler? Yeah, hustler. Yeah. It was something I knew nothing about, about all the court cases and everything, and the fact he ended up in a wheelchair. And it was, it's a, a fascinating story about somebody who's not the nicest of guys, and he doesn't mix with the nicest of people, but Woody Harrelson was incredible. Uh, Milos Foreman directed the hell out of it. Uh, Edward Norton was brilliant. Courtney Love was even pretty good in it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a surprising film and quite funny as well in places. And it was mainly all true. So it was a good one. That's my number nine. Very good choice. I do like that movie. Didn't make my list, but uh, it is a film I like. I think I just haven't seen it in a long time. So it might have made it had I seen it more recently. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, my number nine has already appeared on your list. (laughs) And it's not Kingpin, so it is Happy Gilmore. Excellent. As I mentioned when we went after the ending of it, it's a film that I really love. It's also my favorite Adam Sandler film. It's just funny. I know you were saying you weren't sure kind of why it's the best, even though it's kind of the same. I just think the jokes in this one land better than they do in any of his other movies, you know? Yeah, It's It's funny, and it does have a great supporting cast, Carl Weathers and Julie Bowen and even Bob Barker showing up. So it's just a really, really funny movie. I can always put that movie on and laugh and I can quote it and there's just great great lines it's amazing how many times you use Happy Gilmore quotes yeah yeah exactly they just crop up on you but I think I mean lots of people say they don't like Adam Sandler films but I think most of them would admit that they do like Happy Gilmore. Right, right. It's kind of the the, the Adam Sandler film for people who don't like Adam Sandler films. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, an excellent choice. Uh, well, my number eight is a documentary film directed by Al Pacino, and it was his directorial debut. It is Looking for Richard, mm-hmm. and it's where he he's basically looking at William Shakespeare's Richard III, and him and some friends do some perform some scenes, but then also talk about it and how Shakespeare is relevant to popular culture. It sounds all about you going, oh god, but it's well, Shakespeare's brilliant, but this, the way Al Pacino does this, it's it's really well done, and it was fascinating. And when you get his, his friends include like uh, Kevin Spacey, Winona Ryder, Kevin Conway, Alec Baldwin, Aidan Quinn. So you know, there's a huge amount of talent there, and it just it makes you look at Shakespeare in a different way, which I suppose is the point of all the courses and things about Shakespeare. But if you if you're unsure about Shakespeare, but you want to try and get into it, this is this could be a good way to start. Uh, it's a it's a really well made documentary, and it's a, an enjoyable watch. Well, that's a good pick. I, I have not seen it uh, as I'm not a huge Shakespeare fan, so maybe I need to watch it because, as you said, it might uh, get me a little more invested. But I, I, I'm familiar with the film, so one of these days maybe I'll track it down. Yeah, it was also one I remember when uh, over here uh, before Netflix we had a service called Love Film where they'd send out uh, DVDs mm-hmm. of films, yep. you know, and you watch them, send them back, right. postal service, and. Uh, 
Looking for Richard was the last one I had from them, which disappeared and lost, and I could never find it. Oh, and I still, I still don't know what happened to this day, so <laughs> I apologize for never sending it back. One of these days you're going to get a bill for like $3,000 in late fees. Hoo-ah! <laughs> <laughs> okay, what, what have you got for your number eight? My number eight is a film by Michael Bay. It is The Rock, starring Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. It's a movie we went after the ending of way back, actually. That was one of our early episodes, I believe. Number eight, something like that. Episode 19. Back in episode 19, which was a lot of fun. But I, I just, you know, I, I love Michael Bay's early films. He was doing action movies in a different way from a lot of other people. This one is a lot of fun. Sean Connery is great in it. Uh, I even don't mind Nicolas Cage in it. And it's just, it's a really good action thriller. It's pulse pounding, amazing action sequences, big budget. Uh, and it's it's just a lot of fun. It's really, I think, uh, one of the, the reasons I was a Michael Bay fan early on because his first you know two or three films were fantastic so uh, love The Rock and uh, I'll stick by it fair enough yeah can't argue with that okay my number seven is uh, is Danny Boyle's Train Spotting uh, Ewan McGregor Ewan Bremner but it's and the rest Robert Carlyle of course is Begbie uh, it was when it, when it was released it sort of it just seemed it just hit you in the face with this this look at the CD you know drug world which I had no idea about the whole heroin thing and well I was aware of it but thank god I've never experienced that so uh it was amazing performances by these young actors the way it was directed was fantastic and they had it fused the soundtrack perfectly with it and it became the soundtrack for that summer and a couple of years afterwards uh but but it's just it was just so well done uh it, it probably would have been harmless but just for the fact it's you know, the subject matter, it's hard going. It always got me, some of the newspaper reports at the time are going, train spotting glamorizes, uh, you know, taking drugs. And you watch it and you go, oh my God, no way does this glamorize taking <laughs> right. drugs. Yeah. Right. Oh my God, there's a baby on the ceiling, right. a dead baby on the ceiling. What? Right. Oh, I'm in a giant uh, toilet. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Oh my God, these sheets need a bit of a wash. Right. But uh, it was just a phenomenal piece of filmmaking. And while train spotting 2 is nowhere near as good, it was quite nice seeing the... Uh, you know, with the progression of the characters and catching up with them again. But the original was a superb piece of cinema. Very good. All right. Well, my number seven is going to give us a little bit of a Sean Connery double feature. Uh, it is Dragonheart, starring Dennis Quaid and <laughs> Sean Connery as the voice of Draco the Dragon. I will fully admit I love this film way more than most people do. Yes. Um it's it's a movie I just have a real soft spot for. When it came out, I was excited for it. I was always disappointed that it wasn't a bigger summer blockbuster than it was. It didn't do all that well in theaters. And I've seen it many, many times. And I just love this movie. I don't know what it is about it. I think it's got a good sense of humor. I love the special effects of Draco. Um, I think he looks great. I love Dennis Quaid's character and, and his, his devotion to this kind of outdated, you know, knight's code. And the ending always makes me cry. And um, I don't know. I just like I, I bought like the Dragonheart action figure and I have like a Dragonheart battle axe somewhere that I you know got online I was just really obsessed with this movie and um, I really still just love it I think it holds up well they've made some direct to video sequels which are nigh unwatchable and I I I pretty much disavow any knowledge of their existence because they're they're just an embarrassment to what shouldn't be a franchise it should just be a standalone film but I know this is one that not a lot of people have have a big affinity for, but I just, I love the movie. I really, really do. It's always been a favorite of mine. So that's my number seven. No, it's, it's nice to hear it mentioned. It's not on my list. Uh, I love the, co I love the idea of it. It was a brilliant concept. I thought, yeah. And I still don't know why it didn't work for me and for lots of other people as well. Cause I, I love Dennis Quaid. 
and as you say he's great and the whole character was was really good and sean connery as a dragon was a great idea it's it's kind of thing that i should love and i don't know why i didn't love it yeah and i, I think I, that's... I don't know what the problem was with it Right. I think that's most people's reaction to the film. And I don't know mm. why I love it so much more than everybody else does. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if like – I don't know. There's just something about it that for me really works. And whatever that is, it doesn't work for most other people. But I really do love that movie. Maybe I need to watch it again because I think I only watched it when it – about when it came out. Yeah. Probably when it came out. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know time, how it, w- it will – if it's improved with age because I've loved it from the first time I saw it. Yeah, yeah. Go figure. No, no. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check it out again. Cool. Okay, though, but my number six is directed and produced by Rennie Harlan and written and produced by Shane Black, and it is The Long Kiss Goodnight, starring Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson. And it's all about a hit woman, well, a woman with amnesia who finds out that she's a hit woman and she's getting chased down by the organization who was uh, using her to hit people. (laughs) But uh, Samuel L. Jackson is great as the sleazy private detective guy that he is, and Gina Davis is, is phenomenal as the character Samantha Kane. Or Charlie Baltimore. Or Charlie Baltimore, yeah, two names. I forgot because I had amnesia from the time I was a hitman. <laughs> but it's uh, great fun. As we've mentioned before, Rennie Harlan had a string of these cool action films. This one had a lot of humour as well. It's sort of, it's not been forgotten, but it's still ones that sort of, when you talk about good action films, or it's, it's not really talked about anymore. It's a bit weird. Yeah, no, well, it wasn't that big of a hit, really. It's really been more of a, a kind of a cult favorite, I think, for the yeah, most yeah. part, you know. And it's funny because actually there were two films that I left off my list that I really wanted to get on there, uh, and this was one of them. And the only reason I think it didn't make it on is because it has been quite some time since I've seen it. It is a movie that I love, and I used to quote it a lot, um, yeah. but it's been several years since I've seen it, and I just couldn't, when I was kind of going through my top ten, it, it just sort of was fuzzy enough in the memory that I, I you know, kind of it got edged out but i i do really enjoy the film so it's a great pick fair enough okay well it's probably one we could do uh after the end of four i'm sure that's in our future yes so what have you got for your next one all right my number six is that thing you do directed by and starring and written by tom hanks uh it launched the careers of tom everett scott and jonathan sheck and i guess you could also say Liv tyler it was certainly one of her first films uh steve zahn and ethan embry as well so really a great cast and this is a movie I, I just love. I mean, I, I played the soundtrack to the ground, uh, and it's funny because it was on TV just um, a week or two ago. I was at home. I was on a weekend. It was just me and my daughter, and um, it, I, I flipped on to it. It was on one of the pay channels, so there's no commercials. I flipped on to it about five minutes in, and I was like, oh, you know, this is PG. I think this is appropriate for my, my 10-year-old. Let's see if anything, you know, nothing too offensive comes up. I'll, I'll leave it on, and um, <laughs> I instantly fell back in love with the movie. I, I'd forgotten how much I enjoyed it. It's always is a movie that I've loved, and uh, and she loved it. And we watched that and watched the entire thing. It's very appropriate for kids. It's PG for a reason. There's almost nothing of any sort oh, of brilliant. language yeah. or sex or anything in it. And it's just a fun, fun movie. Great humor, good characters, a really neat story of kind of this one-hit wonder band, sort of like a Beatles type of thing, but on a much smaller scale. And um, everything about it just feels kind of real and authentic. And I love it. It's a great film. It's just one of those feel-good movies. Like, you just you, you walk out of it with a big smile on your face. So... It's one of my favorites, and it's my number six. Brilliant. Yeah, it didn't make my list purely because I've only seen it the once, and oh. all I could really remember was the uh, the tune from it. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, I've seen it in a, in a, like I've seen it a million times. Yeah, I, I need to watch it again because the cast, I do like the uh, the cast, and Tom Hanks as well. Yeah, in the it's great stuff. Steve Zahn is so funny in it. Oh, yeah, because he's always great. Yeah. I do like him. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll definitely have to watch that, and there's 
It's good to know that it's uh, be okay for Hannah to watch. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think she'd really enjoy it, and it holds up extremely well. But it's it's totally PG. I mean, very safe for all ages. Cool. Definitely give that one a rewatch. Okay, my number five. You've already mentioned it. It is Michael Bay's The Rock. Very good. You know, you got Sean Connery as you know could be uh, an older James Bond. We've got Ed Harris being brilliant as always, and we've got Nicolas Cage in one of his slightly crazy but it works roles yes. and it just it all everything comes together so well the action sequences are good the michael bay cliches well they were still on the way to becoming cliches with this one some of them were but uh they work so well and oh it's just so many so many great bits in it and the whole the whole setup and the reason for it and getting sean connery there and and things like that it's just oh it's lovely well not lovely it's <laughs> just cool action and it's funny it is yeah yeah and it's a great use of Alcatraz as well. For sure, for sure. Yeah. But that's my number five. Excellent. My number five is From Dusk Till Dawn, directed by Robert Rodriguez, written by Quentin Tarantino, starring George Clooney and Quentin Tarantino and a bunch of other cool people like Harvey Keitel and Juliette Lewis. Uh, and and it is, Salma Hayek. And Salma Hayek, one of my favorites. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because it's a vampire movie that's actually only half of a vampire movie because for the first half of the film, there are no vampires in it. It's more of like a, a bank heist movie. And then it, then it switches gears halfway through and becomes a, a vampire movie. And I just really love this movie. I remember seeing it in theaters and I was just I, – I thought it was the coolest movie ever. I've watched it a dozen times on video. I never get tired of it. George Clooney is so cool and there's so many great quotable lines in it. And it's just – it's one of those you know great horror comedies that pulls off the horror and the comedy. And I also love the fact that it, it just – it's two different films that seamlessly merge from one genre to another. Um, it's so good that even though Quentin Tarantino acts in it, I still like <laughs> it. And that tells you something. <laughs> So uh, that's my number five from Dust Till Dawn. Just a, a great, fun, fun movie. I totally agree with you. And uh, my number four is from Dusk Till Dawn. All right. I yes, figured it because, would be on your list. Yeah, because all the reasons you said. Oh, it also stars the uh, uh, the brilliant Michael Parks, who uh, sadly passed away a week or so ago. Yep. Uh, but yeah, everything you said, it's just a great cast. They've even, I think Quentin Tarantino works well because his character is a bit of a, you know, he's a total pair of looking at feet and things like that. Right. It just works well. It is one of his best performances because it does fit the movie and fit the character. Yeah. But uh, it's just so, and as you say, that's the, the movie, I wish I'd seen it without knowing about the whole vampire thing because loads of people out there will have gone into it not knowing much about it because back then, you know, right. the, internet, the internet wasn't really a thing. So, you know, it just would have been wonderful to just watch this thing and be going, oh my God, what are these bad guys going to do? And then suddenly... <laughs> yeah, it all flips it on its head. Yep. All right. Well, my number four is a film by the man who's best known for his forays into Middle Earth, and that would be one Peter Jackson. And the film is The Frighteners, one of his least known films. Although I feel like it's finally starting to get some some cultural recognition. But uh, it is the movie he made before the Lord of the Rings films. It's a another horror comedy, actually, two in a row on my list. That's very unusual. Uh, stars Michael J. Fox. And it's it's one of the best horror comedies because it really is creepy, uh, but it's also very funny. Michael J. Fox is terrific in it. It's one of the last major major roles I think he had in a in a film, and um, it's just got great special effects, a really cool concept, great scary moments. It's intense from start to finish. Has all these quirky characters in it. Um, it's just a neat neat concept to you know, uh, sort of a riff on Ghostbusters almost, but completely different. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And uh, it's a movie I've loved since I first saw it. it and, and it's one of those ones where people, I think more and more people discover it every year. And everybody who d- discovers it eventually realizes that it is absolutely brilliant. And I love it. And even though we're into your top three, my gut tells me this may not be the last we hear of the Frighteners on this list. 
we'll see what happens. Well, your gut is spot on because <laughs> my number three is The Frighteners. I had a feeling it would be on your list. Because, yeah, you've, you've, you've got it's a horror comedy and it is creepy, but it's also very funny because you've got uh, Jeffrey Coombs as the as the FBI guy who's yep. one of the creepiest things in there. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. He's just playing a bloke, an old yep. bloke. Yep. Uh, and the, the design of the, the Reaper yeah, it's so cool it's just looking. Brilliant when you just see it flying over the uh, over the rooftops and things like that. And Michael J. Fox's character is the only one who can see it. It's such a great idea. It, it really is, absolutely. And I love too the the sort of not twist ending, but the sort of the, when the reveal when everything comes yeah. together at the end is a little different from people expecting it. Like I knew very little about the film as well. Right. And right. when that happened, that was just it's, I was going, oh my god, that's. I didn't expect that. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, yeah, it's so cool. It's such a great, great film. Frighteners is a great film. If you haven't seen it. Try and track it down where you, wherever you can because it's well worth watching and it should hopefully surprise you yeah. if we haven't just spoiled it. No, I don't well, think not, we have. Don't we have spoiled it too much. Yeah. Nope. Uh, but that was my number three. All right. Well, my number three is a film that uh, defined cool for me in the 90s, and it is Swingers, directed by and starring John Favreau, uh, introducing the world to one Vince Vaughn, uh, which some people may think is a good thing and some people think is a bad thing, but I love Swingers so much. It's so much fun. It's it's, it's a perfect film for me. It it. The characters all work. The dialogue is fantastic. The situation the main character is in, I, at the time, I related to really, really well. Um, and, you know, it just it, it introduced this sort of this kind of lingo, the you're so money and all that stuff. And it just was a, a really neat glimpse into another kind of not another world, but people living a different lifestyle than I was living, but one that seemed realistic that I could relate to. And so it was definitely these characters. You you wanted to hang out with these guys. I think that's really what it is. Like these were these were guys you thought were cool. You wanted to be friends with them. And, you know, I've, I've seen that movie so many times. It was definitely one of those films where, you know, back in the 90s when it came out on video, I would, you know, just take it around to different people's houses and be like, you got to watch this movie. It's so cool. So that's my number three. An excellent pick. It almost made my list. It was bubbling under, but... Uh... Again, it's probably because I haven't seen it in such a long time, but I remember really enjoying it. When I, as you say, Vince Vaughn was just, it's what brought him to the attention of everybody. Right. And he's also, well, him and John Favreau are both incredibly skinny. Yeah, you know, but, I know. Uh, I know, it's true. But it's one of those films where it's mainly just people talking, but they do it. You've seen, you've seen Vince Vaughn doing it, you know, the way he does, he talks and does stuff. But this is the first time he'd seen that. Yeah. So it was fresh and, one, and it was a cracking script and it just... Oh, the confidence his character had and the lack of confidence that John Favreau's character had. But yeah, brilliant film. Didn't quite make my list, but it's an excellent choice for number two and I'm glad it got on your list. Yes. So my number two, though, is... Well, if I tell you, the, it might self-destruct when I've finished. So <laughs> It is uh, Mission Impossible, the first Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise doing his Ethan Hunt. It was a typical Mission Impossible because I did like watching the TV show when it was repeated. We have this team of secret agents doing all this cool stuff somebody hacking into something, somebody when, you know, in disguise, going to this this big ball, trying to find whatever they needed to do. But then you're going, wow, they're going to do it. This is brilliant. And then they all get picked off one by one. You're going, oh, my God. And you're there with <laughs> Ethan Hunt trying to find out what happened. And he's the one framed for it. But how's he going to get away? Well, it's Tom Cruise. He's going to do an awful lot of running. And there's some explosive chewing gum and what have you. But it's great. And it's, of course, directed by Brian De Palma. It's such a great cast as well. And we also had the iconic scene of Tom Cruise dangling from the ceiling over this in the vault trying to get some secrets from the computer. But it's a cracking film. 
and then we had Mission Impossible 2, which we will never talk about again. <laughs> exactly. But the first one was really good. <laughs> it was. You know, I, I've always loved the original Mission Impossible. I know that it was a big hit when it came out, but a lot of people didn't necessarily love it. Uh, but I always really enjoyed it. It's just a great thriller from start to finish. You know, it doesn't let up. It's it's exciting and adventurous. It didn't quite make my list, but it, not because I don't love it. It just was one of those ones that got edged out, you know, when I was putting the list yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, my number two marks the third horror comedy on my list. You know, most years you can't I know you can't find a single good horror comedy. Uh this year we had three that are near masterpieces as far as I'm concerned. And it yeah, is yeah. Wes Craven's Scream. Um the launch of a franchise. You know, as somebody who loves slasher films, you know, watching this movie just take them apart scene by scene and point out everything that's wrong or funny about them and then doing that satirizing it but also doing it at the same time it, it was just it, brilliant and you know the whole thing with drew barrymore being front and center in the marketing the way they did that and then yeah, her not yeah. being a major character uh i just i love this film so much it's got such great dialogue and you know it's a, it, it keeps you guessing it's got great kills a lot of humor uh and you know it launched a franchise that i think is pretty great i enjoyed all the scream films uh, a series of diminishing returns to be fair but all of them are enjoyable even the fourth one was good i like the tv show that's on MTV, um, but this first one is is a classic, and I just I watched it not that long ago. I think it really holds up well. Uh, I mean, aside from some, some of the hairstyles and whatnot, but um, <laughs> it's just it's just such a fun fun movie. And it, and if you're a horror fan, it's hard not to love how they just pick apart every horror trope, you know, and and just sort of have fun with it and play with it. It's it's really great. So that's my number two. Oh, an excellent choice. Didn't make my list, uh, but I agree with pretty much everything you said. It is. It is a great film, and it, I th- you forget, you forget what how what a breath of fresh air it was at the time. Oh, absolutely! The horror genre was pretty much in the dumpster at that point. Yeah, because it's uh, it's become as you said. It's there's been many more, but uh, an excellent choice. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Now we're at the number one. I don't think they're going to be the same, but we'll see. Go ahead and give us. Well, your... I, I seriously doubt you would have picked this one, okay. but I'm not sure. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's but, um, okay. Well, it's uh, this one's kind of funny looking. It's uh, Fargo by the Coen Brothers. Right. That is not my number one, I will tell you that. Although I will say, I will say, as we know, I'm not a huge Coen Brothers fan. I do really like Fargo. Yeah, that it, yeah. it is a film I'm a fan of. It's, it's just, it didn't make my list, but I, it's not because that's one of the ones of theirs that I do actually like. So, Yeah, it's probably one of the more uh, accessible because it does tell, it's got a bit more of a meaty story, I suppose, compared it to It has an others. actual story to it. It's not just yeah, stupid people probably, doing yeah, stupid that's things. That's probably it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's... Uh, well, it's it spawned, you know, th- is it three series now, three seasons of TV show. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Uh, but it's you know, Francis McDormand as the pregnant police chief investigating the murder that happened because of William H Macy, who, God, you just hate him in that film, but <laughs> yeah. because he does it so well, uh, and Steve Buscemi and Peter Stormare as the bad guys, and you know, the scene with the, the wood chipper, and Steve Buscemi has never been more Weasley, and whiny as he is in this one but it's it was superb casting with a brilliant script it's just and William H. Macy you just want to punch for being such an idiot (laughs) yeah Fargo brilliant film right right good pick very good okay what have you got for your number one then well Phil I'll tell you you had me at what have you got for your number one it is Jerry Maguire of course (laughs) yeah 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 um you know it's this is one of those movies that is a long time all-time favorite of mine. I mean, I think anytime you have a film that gets 
not one but two catchphrases into the popular lexicon. You know, show me the money and you had me at hello. Actually, three. No, no, you don't say it like that. It's show me the money. Show, right. At three, if you count um, You Complete Me, which is also pretty. You know, you, you hear any one of those and people know what movie you're talking about. Also, I'm not going to do what everybody thinks I'm going to do. <laughs> right. Just freak out. Yeah, I had my arms up in the air right. when I was doing that. Help me help you. It's <laughs> it's uh, The human head weighs eight pounds. Uh, it, anyway, I could go on all night. It It is... Cameron Crowe's masterpiece, in my opinion. I think it is easily Tom Cruise's finest performance. Um, and, you know, it's one of those films to me that's just magical from start to finish. It is really a film about just a guy and this relationship that he doesn't appreciate. But it does everything so well. It's so well written. And I love the, I love the, the arc that this character goes through from being this, you know, smug, smarmy, successful guy to getting beaten down and then having to build himself back up from nothing. And, and I love the fact that, like, he doesn't just find the perfect girl and fall in love and everything is, you know, roses and daisies from the start. It's yeah. it, He has to discover that, that he loves her back, even though she's in love with him. Like, there's so many parts about it that I think are, even though it's a Hollywood fantasy, that are true to real life. You know, it's not just boy and girl meet cute, fall in love, everybody wins in the end. You know, everybody gets broken down before they get built back up. And I really love that about the film. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry. It's just, it's a beautiful movie and I absolutely adore it. And it's it's been, from the very first time I saw it in theaters, it has held a special place in my heart. So that's my number one. Not a big surprise. When I looked at the list of what movies came out this year, I knew this was going to be it because I, I really do love this movie a level higher than many many other films that's my number one an excellent choice and the only reason it didn't make my list is because i haven't seen it in a long long time fair enough that, that happens a lot to. <laughs> no yeah. it happens a lot with these lists it's the same yeah. thing with a couple of the ones we mentioned earlier where i wanted to put it's it one, on it's, there yeah it's ones i know i enjoyed at the time but it's when you're going well is it better than this one or right when you have to rank yeah. them suddenly the fuzziness kind of gets in your way a little bit that's exactly yeah. what i felt like with long kiss goodnight you know film i loved yeah. but i couldn't remember how it stacked up because it's been a while but no i'm glad it made made the list though because it's a good film and as you say so many it did you forget certain films like that which spawn so many catchphrases and little bits and elements and things which appear even now in other things but you sort of forget yeah and it's a, yeah, it's a good one. It's another one I need to... So that one, Jerry Maguire, and I think you do, I definitely need to revisit. Agreed. Very good films both. Yeah. All right. Well, that is going to wrap up our top 10 for this week, and that's going to wrap up our episode as well. Phil, why don't you tell people what we have in store for them next episode? Okay, yes. Next week we will be going after the endings of Ridley Scott's Gladiator. So guess what me and Mike think of that film? <laughs> um, I don't know what you're saying, Phil. I don't think that episode will have any Ridley Scott bashing at all. That doesn't sound like me in any way, shape, or form. So <laughs> It's... Uh, it's a bit mad how it's becoming a recurring thing. Maybe <laughs> that's because Ridley Scott needs to man up. Right. I was going to say, or at least, no, I will say, all his films always look beautiful. This is true. It is true. Yeah. So, you know, can't fault him on that. Right. Uh, we'll also be going after the ending of, hold on, I've just said what we think about Gladiator. We'll also be doing Dude, Where's My Car? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Which is a highly superior film in my opinion. But anyway, yeah, we'll get into yeah. that next week. Yeah. So it's a film which I, yeah. What does mine say? <laughs> Sweet. Okay. And also we'll be doing our top 10 films of 1948. Yes. Should be an interesting episode to say the least. Yeah. But uh, you know what? It's going to be fun to listen to whether we like the films or not. Uh, sometimes I think they're more fun when we don't like the films. Well, 
Next week should be fun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, then, it is time for us to bring this episode to a close. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Boy, Alien Covenant was kind of crap, huh? Yeah. I mean, there was, there was like segments of like five or ten minutes where... Yeah, I had way less of a problem with him than I had with those alien puppet pantomime dance. Oh Christ! But what, what, yeah, well, it wasn't even a chest burst, then. and it come, and it just stands there doing this. Yeah, doing like this weird little. It reminded me of the thing from um, Spaceballs. Yes, that's what it was like. Yeah, you yeah. know, where it does a little, little song and dance. <laughs> exactly. You know? You're like, it's like, it's like they were doing what yoga. What's going on here? And not to mention like. Yeah, well, I remember like, when Alien, Alien really? vs. Predator came out and everybody was going, oh my God, it's ridiculous. Oh, for the days of Alien vs. Predator. Who would have thought it? <laughs> but the fact uh, as well, like, the thing is, well, it had the alien point of view near the end. I don't remember the alien point of view. Yeah. No, well, it's just when you said it looks like there was a, first of all, I thought it was CCTV footage on the uh, on the Covenant ship, but then it started yeah, moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think that's what I thought yeah, it but was. But it was, that was actually was the alien. The alien. Oh, see, that wasn't even clear. Yeah. I, I, I like, though, the idea that it's like the alien point of view, and he's like, well, now, you know, from my point of view, the way I yeah. see it is, I'm just an alien trying to get by in this universe, yeah. you know, and everyone's out to kill me, and I'm just trying to make a buck and find something to eat. Is that so wrong? I wake up, I'm in this these human people, and I, and I get out, and then I'm on this spaceship, and I'm just trying to find a way out. I'm trying to talk to them. You have no idea how scary it is to wake up and be inside of a person's chest. You know what I mean? Like, you just don't know what that's like. I'm only 10 minutes old and people are trying to kill me. <laughs> right. Give me a chance here, people. But now as well, David. Nuggets. Basically, what's going, Ridley Scott, stop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> seven minutes of conversation, all I'm going to pull out for people yeah. to hear is, God, Ridley Scott, please stop making movies. <laughs> Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, I wish you were coming to America. Well, <laughs> no. I've been ironing giants. Been ironing? Ironing oh. giants. <laughs> uh, so, what is that? Like you put a giant on like an ironing board and like you flatten it out? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's big over here in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Giant ironing is a big trend right now. Yeah, this time of year we have a big ironing giants festival. <laughs> oh, where all the towns and villages through through uh, uphill and down dale, we all get the local giants and we iron them. I am sure the giants appreciate that. Mm -hmm. All right, let me um, let me go back and see if I can salvage this. So uh, <laughs> you said I'm if anybody's just joining us, <laughs> we didn't come up with a good link to go <laughs> right, into this episode. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Just Ridley Scott, stop making films. Yeah. So. I'm an alien. I've only been back for two minutes. <laughs> We're going to throw callbacks to things that haven't even been in the episode. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> oh, hold on. Come to America quotes. That's what I meant to do. I always meant to look at What is quotes. that? Velvet? That's the one I always quote from <laughs> Coming to America. I can't really say the royal penis is clean, your highness, can I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'd prefer maybe Yes. Not. No. Keep it clean. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, that's what you would be doing. Yeah. But... <laughs> so why All did you right. come here? To find something special? It's a long way to know. Just, just for the record, we've been recording for 10 minutes now. We don't I was have, thinking that as well. We don't have 10 usable seconds of material. Well, you know, it's uh, I can't try. I was going to try and get vibranium into it. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's hard to make a pun out of yeah, vibranium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, my nerves are 
jangling like vibranium in there anticipation. Yeah. Although for people out there who do know what that is, your nerves wouldn't be jangling because vibranium absorbs. Think, oh my God, comic nerd, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> let it die, Phil, let it die. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Thanks. Not, uh, not, just not giving me much to go with here. No, no, sorry. No, I realized I was saying it. No, you've, you've got that spot on. It's Mike. called it's Yes it. And. It's a it's a basic tenet of improv comedy. Work with me, damn it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see yes, be... and good film. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. And if, if you honestly, if you haven't seen it, go and, go and watch it because you won't be disappointed. Definitely. Or you might be if you just if you've got no love in your heart. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> that should be a, on a poster, shouldn't it, for a film? Right. <laughs> okay. First of all, I just need to blow my nose, so apologies. Because... <laughs> Go right ahead. I'm totally leaving that in, though. Yeah. This is me blowing my nose. <laughs> oh my god! What's that? It's alive. Okay. <laughs> god damn you, Ridley Scott. <laughs> it's a nose burst oh no that's minging sorry about that <laughs> a nose burster that's gonna be the okay. next aliens film it's gonna the little aliens are gonna come out of people's noses 